0: the words that you put in this heart and may it be a beneficial and enter our heart, hearts to build us up in Jesus' name, amen. amen. There we go. All right, so before I get started, um, <clears throat> I didn't wanna take up anybody else's uh, <coughs> share time. So I figured, well, I'll just wait till I'm up here because I've got the platform anyway. So I, I reached out to, uh, to Wayne just to kind of see how he's doing. And I said, hey, Wayne, how's it going? You know, I've been on my mind. You know, I've missed you. And uh, so he gave me a feedback. And he says, uh, Jesus is by my side. He's got to keep doing his exercises. He has some improvement. And he says, if you can, tell the people at TGP that I love them and appreciate your prayers. So he's making progress. He's uh, keeping up with his exercises. He's got you know regular doctor's appointments, um, but uh, he loves you guys. He misses you guys, and he can't wait to be back. So I just wanted to share that. Uh, so keep praying for him that, that the Lord completes the healing of those tumors and that he's fully recovered in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> so uh, after having our our, lead, our our most recent leadership meeting. And uh, asking the Lord, like, what what is 2024 going to hold for us? Uh, one of the things that kind of came to the forefront is there's going to be an increase in uh, supernatural activity. Now I know we're a charismatic church, and we always talk about the supernatural stuff, um, but uh, something something is shifting in 2024. Uh, that's the sense that we get, and so. Starting next week, we're going to start a series on 2 Corinthians, because it deals a lot with supernatural activity and the supernatural realm. Um, and so I thought, well, what, what, a, what to do before that is to maybe set the stage for the idea of being aware of supernatural activity. <clears throat> so that's what we're going to do today. It's, this is actually going to be more of a, a teaching than a preaching not a lot of practical, it's informational. Just get to get get that out, you know, it's would be like professor mode. <clears throat> so with that, I'll go ahead and get started. So we're going to be looking at some more supernatural topics in 2024. Uh, we are going to redo the, uh, the prophetic um, workshops uh, at some point. I'll get that on the calendar. And there might be some other things uh, to come uh, to be determined. Um, And I believe that this year is going to have that increased activity. Some people might call it spiritual warfare. Anytime you get into spiritual activity, there's going to be opposition one way or the other. So it is kind of a a battle. And um, whenever we go to kind of frame a larger concept like this, what I believe is it's important to understand the scriptures, what we call rightly dividing the word of truth, And one of the major things that I was trained about um, interpreting scripture is to try to understand the point of view of those who wrote it, which means going into historical context, which means going into cultural context, which means going into how they use the language. You know, if it's a poetry book, there's a certain way it's structured. If there's um, like a creation story, they call it a mythos. Everybody gets that mixed up with mythology, so we tend not to use that term, but creation story, there's a way that they do it from where they're coming from that we are now like thousands of years removed from common, commonly understanding. So try to get back to what they're originally saying, what their point of view was, what those contexts are. So that's what I'm doing today. <clears throat> um, the reason I think this is important is, uh, before I, I studied theology in depth, I studied history. My, my undergraduate degree is in classical studies and history. I double majored because I'm a nerd. Um, so what's classical studies? Greek and Roman literature, Greek and Loma, Roman language, Greek and Roman history, Greek and Roman culture, and history. So I had an emphasis on history with uh, medieval history. And so in, in just my undergrad, uh, when I look at Christianity from that framework, I see the evolution of thought that happens from the Greek and Roman world into the Reformation. And there's a lot of changes that happened. Believe it or not, a lot of, a lot of the stuff that we view, particularly, particularly in like the, the sexual area, has been influenced profoundly by St. Augustine who has spent so much time battling against other movements in his day that he kind of set a standard for the way the church looked at sexuality for 1,500 years. And today, it's not as applicable. And there's problems with that, that we've had to overcome. It's the same way with understanding scriptural interpretation. When you get to what they call the early church fathers, Augustine, Tertullian, maybe you know these names, maybe you don't, they're the ones that really set the stage that when they read scripture, they turned everything into a metaphor. Everything was metaphor and allegory. Kind of a deviation from the way the first century Jews looked at it, kind of a deviation from the way the Jews in the Old Testament viewed things. So that's kind of peppered the landscape of how we do biblical reading. Alright, I know this is a long, long backstory here. It's important though. It's important. I tell you, it's important. (laughs) So, there are some things that came out um, in, in the academic world as a result of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, these came out in 1948. So, if you're holding to the solid teachings of Martin Luther, it doesn't have that aspect. If you're looking at biblical interpretation from John Calvin or Erasmus or Joseph Arminius, if you're looking from that, they're missing new information that came out in the Dead Sea Scrolls. A lot of our older Bible translations don't use the Dead Sea Scrolls to inform the new findings. So, why is that important? Because whenever you go into translations, whoever's doing the translation has to make judgment points on how to translate that, which will affect the way you read it. So if we can get back to the original points of view and the original language as much as possible, we can recapture a little bit more about what the original authors were saying and were doing. All right, so now having said that, a lot of background information, we're going to plow through it because I I could probably bog down this for two hours and my goal is to do it in like 30 to 40 minutes, all right, because I'm a nerd, I can do that and just not even think twice about it. So first up, uh, I put a quick PowerPoint together for Kara. I don't have a lot of the Bible verses written down just because I was doing it during worship. That's why the, the words were a little bit off because I was like trying to do PowerPoint, swoop, PowerPoint, switch. Um, so I'm sorry for that. that. That lack of quality is due to me. I apologize. So first up, uh, understanding the spiritual atmosphere is the title of our message today. Um, our first main point is the playing field. Uh, what's our next slide here, Kara? Here are the key players. <clears throat> I'm going to go through and do a little explanation on each one. <clears throat> in the spiritual atmosphere, there are divine beings, and I'm going to use that term specifically because uh, we'll get into like why angels and demons are not the best term for just everything in the spiritual world. Right? There are divine beings that are on God's side. We call them the hosts of heaven, and um, they, they, they have a whole different class category. Um, that we just, we're, we're not entirely privy to. The only reason I even have an inkling of that is because 10 years ago, I wrote my first novel, and there's this whole novel series, and uh, the whole premise was understanding like the spiritual activity beti- behind historical movements based on the points of view of divine beings. And so I actually did my research and found a guy named Pseudo-Dionysius, who was in the 500s AD, we actually put down like a, a category of like nine different classes of angelic beings. Right? I'm not going to get into all that. But there's divine beings on God's side. And then next up, there's divine beings that are opposed to God. And we'll get into a little bit of a history about that. And they're not just demons. And I'll, I'll break that down. There's, we're going to call them divine beings because that's a bigger class category. There's also humanity. We play a role in this. In Genesis, God created Adam and Eve. Why He created them male and female. In the image of God, he created them. breathed in them the breath of life. So we have a part to play in this. The original goal for Adam and Eve and for humanity was that we would be part of God's divine counsel ruling here on earth. And we gave that away to the serpent. So now there's this Category where we're trying to get that back, right? God's mission is to get humanity back to where they were supposed to be, ruling with Him, and with His, you know, aligned to divine beings in the spiritual world. That's a whole other thing. In addition to humanity, we have nations and governments or regions. Like these, these are big key players. You know, political policy can change in the drop of a hat to be either friendly to or hostile toward God's people. I mean, look at all the. Protests in the universities right now about the Palestinians and the Jewish war that's going on. Now, we could go down a long rabbit trail on that, right? Sentiment changes. Government policies have a place to play in this. And then we have demons, our, our classic term for nefarious supernatural beings. And then we have what I would call um, spiritually occupied spaces. <clears throat> Holy ground, unholy ground, things like that. <coughs> Now, each one of these, you can just go into a deep dive in, right? I'm just, this is an overview. So, we're going to look at the next point is the etymology of some of these common terms. Etymology just basically means, like, like a, the, the breakdown of where these terms came from, right? So, as a linguist, you kind of follow the evolution of the language. So, the first one, one of the most popular ones, the etymology of the term demon. What is a demon? <clears throat> uh, so this, this, this might be some new information for people, which is fine, because what we really think of is, and this might challenge this challenged my mindset. It might challenge yours, it might not. I don't know. I don't know where you're at. This is the idea that we have. Sometime eons and eons ago, there was a war in heaven where Satan convinced one-third of the angels in heaven to rebel against God, and they were cast down to earth. And they've been in opposition to God ever since. And the, where we get that from, the main verse we get that from, is out of Revelation 12. I'm not going to read it, but we know it. The big dragon, a third of the stars in heaven. If you follow the chronology just in Revelation, that war happens after the birth of Jesus. Because just before that, you have the birth of the man-child from the woman. So when you're reading Revelation that doesn't happen in time past. That happens sometime after Jesus. So, a chronology. So, demons. Where do the demons come from? <clears throat> now, this is ancient world point of view. Right? If we look at uh, the first century, the people who wrote the New Testament, this is in their framework of thinking. Right? This is the common knowledge in their world. <clears throat> That demons, these nefarious supernatural beings, are the remnant spirits of the Nephilim in the Old Testament. And so well, how does that happen? How does that happen? God creates Adam and Eve in their own image. In the image of God, He creates them. And so we bear the image of God. And with that we have an eternal spirit. This is a this is line of thinking, right? So God also has children in the spiritual realm called sons of God, the Elohim, right, or the the Benile Elohim, whatever term. Some of them decide, we want to do that too. So they create humans in their image, and that becomes these Nephilim. That's the term we get. And, And it happens in different periods in the Old Testament if you look it up. So what happens is when, when King David comes in, they take over the land, right? The, um, Joshua, King David, they take over the land of Israel and they push out the groups. And, you know, they, they take over. What they're doing is they're removing these offspring that came from these other sons of God. So anytime, time, this is interesting, any time in the Old Testament where you see God giving a, just, a, a, just an annihilation command, every man, woman, and child... It's not because he's a genocidal maniac. It's because those are remnants, this is, this is in the ancient worldview, those are remnants of the sons of God who created humanity in their image. That's the belief system. And so any total annihilation is these Nephilim. He just doesn't send them out to kill people in mass. It's very specific. Any, any, any other like non-Nephilim-related people, he spares them. But Nephilim-related, done away with. Because these other sons of God have created a humanity in their image. So what happens in the belief system, when you kill them, their spirits live on, and those are demons. And those are the demons that Jude talks about, and those are the demons that Peter talks about in Second Peter. <clears throat> hope I'm not... I hope I'm not boring you guys with this stuff. This is, like I, like I, like I said, I can, I can geek out on this, right? So that's what's going on. That's where biblical writers, their view of where demons come from. That's the nature of demons themselves. <coughs> demons are called uh, demons. They're called unclean spirits sometimes in the New Testament. And in other literature, they're called bastard spirits. So why are they unclean? It, for the most part... Most things in the Old Testament that's considered unclean is a result of what can be called an, uh, a forbidden mixture. And that's the whole thing that Jude talks about, is these forbidden mixtures. So you have this forbidden mixture of the sons of God and the daughters of women. You have a forbidden mixture of having two types of fabric woven together into one piece of clothing. You have a forbidden mixture with uh, like horses and, and donkeys making mules, things like that. So that's where the unclean, a lot of the unclean comes from, is, is these forbidden mixtures. <clears throat> there are other things that are just unclean by the nature of themselves, like pigs. Like there's no forbidden mixture for pigs. But that's, that's important to, to see uh, in the role of demons. Now, demons are different from sons of God, right? The, these benai Elohim is the, the, the Hebrew term that we see in Genesis 6 and we see in Deuteronomy 32. So for demons, they, they try to possess people sometimes. Jesus comes to possess the demons, uh, demon-possessed people. And what that is, is these disembodied spirits trying to find a re-embodiment on earth. So they're trying to re-embody by taking over other humans. <clears throat> now, in terms of like where we stand in all of this, demons are the category that we, we have direct authority over. We can cast out a demon. We can run a demon out of our house. Right? We, can, like, we can actually contend with these in Jesus' name because we're redeemed. <laughs> and they can't possess us. They, they might attack us. They might afflict us. right? If the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, legit, and you're redeemed, they can't come inside. They can't live inside of you. Um, that, that's that's a, a key thing to understand in terms of spiritual warfare. So this is a type that we can contend with. <clears throat> now I'm going to use a little evolution of terms here. In the Old Testament, a disembodied spirit is known as a Shadim. Um, if, you, if you looked in the Greek, like the Greek ancient world, they were, if you read like the Odyssey, right? Odysseus at one point goes to like this meeting place of the underworld and he talks to these uh, departed spirits, right? And they call them shades. I don't think it's related to Shadim in Hebrew, But that's what they are. They're disembodied spirits. Um, And then by the time you get to the translators into the the Greek Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint, they make the the, the idea, the, the, the decision, to use the Greek term daimonion. And so in the Greek world, daimonion is a morally neutral disembodied spirit. Like, like, in the Greek mind, a daimonion is just a spirit. Could be good, could be bad. You know, just like in the ancient Arabic, the, the jinn, where we get the idea of genie from. They're just these, they're disembodied. They, they could be good, could be bad, but the term is just disembodied spirits. And that's what shadim means in Hebrew. But then, daimonion becomes the term that the people who read the Greek Old Testament use when they get to writing the New Testament. So it becomes demons. Um, and by the time the New Testaments are writing it, the demons become the clear um, equivalent of these dead Nephilim spirits. So demons become to that. And then it becomes Latinized, it becomes Anglicized, now we have demons. That's where the word demon comes from. <clears throat> then we have angels, right? So for us, we have this dichotomy. Angels are white hat, demons are black hat, right? Good and bad. When you look at the Greek, angelos just means messenger. It's a job description. It's not a nature, right? It's not their nature as an angel. They're messengers. So whenever you see the, the term angel show up, it's, it's a supernatural being, but it's it's a messenger. And whenever you read, like, Greek translations of the Old Testament or Greek translations of um, other Hebrew uh, literature, what you see is anytime you see a a human messenger playing a role in the narrative, they're called servants. But when they're divine, they call them angelos. So there's, like, this divine. And that's where we get the idea of this divine status of angels. Categories, right? Cherubim. So you've probably heard of cherubim, cherubs. Cherubim are, in the ancient world, and this is looking at Hebrew, this is looking at Akkadian, this is looking at Babylonian, Sumerian, because they all have a very linguistic uh, root. Just like uh, Spanish and Italian and French are all based in Latin, these all have a very similar Semitic root. Cherubim are known throughout the ancient world as what they call throne guardians. They guard the throne of the king or the god. And in most of those ancient worlds, they take on the image of a serpent. And so, what's happening in Eden? Okay, so we're going, to look, we're going to look back at Eden, right? God creates Adam and Eve. They're in there, naming all the creatures. God created a garden, a very cultivated space for Adam and Eve to live in. Now, that doesn't mean the whole world was Eden, just that space. And gardens in the ancient world are the dwelling places of deities, the dwelling places of the kings. And so God shows up in Eden, creates Adam and Eve as part of his court, because he's the king, right? So he has a court of advisors, a court members, things like that. Adam and Eve are part of that court. So are the sons of God, these divine beings. So they're all holding courts together in Eden. So when the serpent comes up to Eve. It's nothing out of the ordinary, like we would think, like oh man, that, that snake's talking to me, right? Or, or uh, what's his name, Balak, Balam, uh, with the donkey, right? Or the donkey is what you call it, donkey. <laughs> so, so for Eve, this is just another member of the court coming up and saying, hey, you know, what about that fruit over there? No, no idea that he was doing something contrary to Yahweh, right? He's like, this is conversation. And we find out later on that he has nefarious purposes for this. So, serpent is a cherub. So, this is, this is a throne guardian. This is one of the guardians of God's throne. That's, that's where we start getting this connection to. Now, how, how, do we have a scripture that talks about cherubim being related to the throne? Yes. I don't think I put it up here, but the reference is 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 2. And I'll read it. Um, feel free to look it up if, um, with me if you want. That is 2 Samuel 6, 1 and 2. David, again, gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God. So we're talking the Ark of the Covenant, which is called by the name of, this is the name of the Ark, the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. He sits on the throne of the cherubim. So that's, that's the image we get. That's the phrase we get. Now you can you find it in other ones. I just wanted to give you an example. <clears throat> also, when you look at the, the history of how the Bible came about, most scholars agree. Like uh, So I hold to Mosaic authorship you know, of the, of the Torah. However, it, it goes through a final editing process before it comes the way that we have it. And given the language, given the structure, <laughs> given the imagery, it became pretty clear that, that that final form in the Old Testament came together right around the time of the Babylonian captivity. So here we have the Jewish people in a foreign land, living amongst uh, their conquerors and their deity and their religion and their practices and their imagery. And so what they do a lot of times is they will use some of the Babylonian imagery to make a point about Yahweh. And so that you can see this, uh, this connection. Uh, like the Tower of Babel, the, the, the Hebrew term that they use for that is Babylonim, which means uh, gateway to God. And in Babylon, they had the temple of Marduk, which was a ziggurat. And they built this giant ziggurat. And at the top of that ziggurat, that's where you can have the meeting place with God. Now, why do they do ziggurats? Why do they do pyramids in Egypt? Um, To quote one of my favorite uh, theologians, Mr. Heiser, he's like, it's not because the aliens like triangles. (laughs) Right? Because he takes on the, uh, the ancient aliens thing. He's like, because in the ancient world... God's lived in the most remote places. So they live in the mountains. They live in the bottom of the sea. They live in those places you can't get to. They live in the sacred spaces. And so what humanity does is they build these mountains, these fake mountains, to be a dwelling place for their gods. And so they're pulling this imagery. So we're still talking about cherubim here, right? So the serpent in Genesis is a cherub. Pretty high ranking member of the court. So when we get to Jude, who's quoting 1st Enoch, which is kind of murky when you get into it, he says that when Michael and Satan battle over the body of Moses, Michael says, The Lord rebuke you. Right? Now we've taken that and put that into our, our practice too, right? Whenever we're like, praying for somebody, we'll say, the Lord rebuke you. Sometimes it's, it depends on your philosophy, right? The Lord rebuke you, because that's what it says in Jude. Or some other people say, well, I, in the name of Jesus, rebuke you. You know what? One way or the other, right? Why would Michael do that? Why would Michael have to say, oh, the Lord rebuke you? Because in some ways, Michael's an archangel. Lucifer's a chariot, a cherub. So there, there is a class differentiation that happens. And so, in one sense, God does send Michael with the authority to do this. And another sense, like on an ontological scale, Lucifer is above Michael's weight class, right? Now, God can give him the power to do things, but Michael understood his his place, right? And so, he calls on the name of the Lord to do this work. He's not going out in his own authority, which is different than we when we go up against a a, a shadim, right? A little Minor demon—that's just a leftover ghost from a giant, right? Like I said, this is the ancient world way of thinking things, and this is like, what? Where, where did all this come from? And also, there's never an instance where in Scripture where we see that the devil himself actually possesses somebody. We see that trumped up in um, in Hollywood when it comes to possession movies. We might see that pop up in like some anecdotal account. There's no scriptural instance of the devil actually possessing somebody. That's not his class category. That's, that's, a, that's a, a dead Nephilim ghost that's going into somebody. So the devil doesn't actually come in and possess people. He's, he's far beyond that. <clears throat> so I would say, based on how this breaks down, we as Christians today, So, there's this already not yet, right? There's already not yet. We're already redeemed in God. We're already called holy ones, which is a whole other gamut. And there's some parts that are not yet. We're we're not yet in places of authority, officially, over the nations, right? That's going to happen, not yet. Already, but not yet. I think that the already, we clearly have authority over demons. Jesus shows that. Jesus sends out the disciples, Mark you know says you shall cast out demons in my name, all that good stuff. there is a not yet though I don't think we have the authority to upend a cherub or a seraph or any of those uh, groups or son of God that's that's a whole different class we're not there yet we will be we're not there yet and you know, when, when Paul says that... Uh, haven't a, have a, do you not know that you will judge angels? Right. That's in 1 Corinthians. Like, that's that group. We're gonna send judgment over those. Not yet. We're getting there, right? We're already redeemed. We're not yet there. Uh, so my, my recommendation, be wise. Don't try to punch above your weight class. That's just not, uh, that might not end well. Actually, it might just not even pay attention to you because you know, like, well, he'll need something bigger. But God assigns those tasks to the opposition. Okay. It's been a long time on that, so I'm just going to kind of burn through some of this. If you guys want me to slow down, let me know, but I don't want to keep you too long. I don't want to bore you too much. Seraphim just means burning ones. Whenever you say, oh, they're like blazing with fire, right? That's the seraphim. They sit in the courts as well. They're they're part of God's court, they're a governmental body. Whenever God holds court, (laughs) he judges cases, they might give him uh, instruction. They might give him like something like to, to give a decree. Uh, just like uh, the, the evil spirit from the Lord that went to King Saul. That's most likely one of these court people that says, hey, why don't we do this? You know, God might say, we need to bring Saul down a notch. Now We don't know how that conversation happens. He'll have a court. They'll offer suggestions. And if he likes one of the suggestions, uh, he'll say, okay, go do it. Uh, there was one about uh, deceiving Ahab. You know when uh, Ahab and I think it was like uh, Jethro, Jethro, Jeshbel, one of the one of the uh, kings of Judah went to battle together. There's a scene where the prophet, you know, of God comes in, and he first he mocks and he's like, "Oh yeah, just like all the the gods, uh, the prophets of Baal, go and go and you'll you'll have victory." And then he goes, and then he's like, I, "Don't give me this, don't make fun of me. What do you say the Lord is saying?" And 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 that prophet says. I see the throne of God and I see him holding court and the Lord says how shall we bring Ahab down and one of those court members says why don't we why don't I go down and deceive him to make him think that he's going to win that battle this is this is in I think it's a first or second Kings this is what the prophet is saying In the supernatural realm God is holding court and one of his court members is saying why don't I go down there and put a deceiving word in the mouth of the prophets of Baal so that he goes to battle and dies. That's what the prophet sees and declares. And it happens. So they might go from the assembly to accompany Yahweh in battle. They might do some of these things to carry out the Lord's will. So that's the, the seraphim, the cherubim, the divine council. God holds court. And then we have this, this other idea that they knew that we we're like, what? This is the idea of other gods, right? Or the. the um, we look at the Babylonians and they, they worship Marduk. We look at the Canaanites, they worship Baal, right? We look at the Pharaoh, they, they worship Ra. And Seth, we might look at the Pantheon of the Romans or the Greeks, Zeus, Jupiter, you know, you name all of those. When we look at Scripture, now this is like, you wouldn't know it until somebody puts it together because I would have never picked up on this. I'm, I don't think I'm that smart. I just know how to read other people's stuff, to be honest. <clears throat> if we look at Psalm 106 and Deuteronomy 32, we start being able to put together an idea of what happens in the supernatural arena. So at the Tower of Babel, humanity decided to collectively go against God. Right? God's command is, go into the world, be fruitful, and multiply it, fill it, subdue it. In the Tower of Babel story, in Genesis 11, they do the opposite. They congregate together into one city, and then they try to build a temple to become like God. Right, that they can reach the heavens, and God divides the languages and forces them to scatter. When we look at Psalm 106, Deuteronomy 32, when we look at I'm just going to name some of the scriptures off. You can write them down. Come back to them. Job 1 through 6, or Job 1-6, Job 2, Job 38, Psalm 29, Psalm 89, Deuteronomy 14, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 82. We put together this idea. What happens is that at the event of Babel, God, and I'll I'll read the Deuteronomy passage, God disinherits the nations. He says, I'm done with these people. And I will pick one man and build a nation out of them, and they will be mine. So what does he do? I'll read it in just a second. What does he do? It says he divides the nations, he divides the humanity, up according to the number of the sons of God. His divine group, right, his divine children. They are then put over the nations to rule. They defect on their duty. They start receiving worship. They start influencing them their way. And then God has to be done with it, um, which the Psalm 82 port has to do with it. Okay, so Deuteronomy. I'm going to read the Deuteronomy thing. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So he's allocated his other divine beings to oversee the nations. They do such a bad job that God judges them for it. And that's Psalm 82, 6 through 7. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. Sons of the Most High. All of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. He declares their judgment and their mortality for defecting on their responsibility to govern these nations justly. And then it says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So God said, I'm going to take Israel. You guys govern these other ones. They did such a bad job that then God uses Israel to reclaim all the nations. <clears throat> so this is, this is the image that we're seeing. I'm going to jump a little bit to the New Testament. So there's this table of nations. Like In, in, in the ancient world, the, the extent of the known world was, uh, there are roughly 70 to 72 nations that we see. Um, so it's no coincidence that when Jesus sends out his disciples in pairs, in Matthew you have him sending out 70 in Luke, he's sending out 72. It's basically, according to the table of nations, that God is sending out his messengers to declare he's re-inheriting the nations to himself through the work of Jesus Christ. And so, very clear symbolic stuff that's happening that's, that's known to people in the Jewish world that we are kind of lost to. <clears throat> So in the end, I would say we can't stand pound for pound against um, these ruling classes. That's, that's not our place. God's going to have to send a similar divine being to take care of that. Now when it comes to, to governors of, you know, those that govern the nations, what we can do, and this is what Jerry and Twyla have, have been really adamant about, is that intercessory prayer. So like, I, I can't go up to the Prince of Persia, right, and say, you get out of here. Right? I can't go to the Prince of the United States and say, "You're done. Get out." That's not going to happen. What we can do as believers is we can petition the throne of God about it, and He can send a heavyweight to contend with them. That's what we can do: intercessory prayer. Right? Re- we intercede on that, and then God will send His chosen champion to go take care of business. <clears throat> when we look in the New Testament, we have terms like principalities, powers, thrones. Those are just regional authorities, right? Regional, national authorities. We stand against them through the gospel, right? We stand against them with our intercessory prayer. And we can resist them because we have the power of God because God is in the process of disinheriting all of them. Now, when we become Christians, one of the first things we do after we make our confession this baptism, right? And I remember remember Eric, you know, we went on a retreat, and uh, Maya and Kate brought this guy named Eric with these long dreadlocks, like blonde-haired, blue-eyed dude, long dreadlocks, rapping, and he was curious about this Christianity thing. So they had me sit down, and for three hours, I think it was about three hours, I went through from, like, Genesis to the Gospel and, and tied as best I could, like, the Hebrew stuff, the, the Jewish stuff, in with the gospel. And then he, then he was like, so he, he came to believe, and then he had to make a decision, like, okay, I need to be baptized, who should baptize me? So he went out and he asked believers that, that he knew, and said, like, like, what do you know about baptism? And when he asked me, I gave him my explanation about baptism, and I guess he liked that because he wanted me to baptize him. So we baptized him in a, in a big metal bucket in Byron's backyard in 2008. I remember that. Baptism, we think it's just a ritual. But what's happening is we, because before we know Jesus, we are under the authority of one of these other deities. Like we're serving them, whatever their specialty is, you know, could be like Satan ultimately, right? When we are baptized in Jesus, what we're doing is we're changing allegiance, we are changing citizenship. Just like if you want to come to America and become a citizen, Typically, you have to renounce your citizenship to your home country. That's what's happening here. We are renouncing citizenship with Satan or one of his um, followers. And we are aligning ourselves with God. We are drawing a battle line that we are on God's side. We are aligned with him. And when we go to war, we are going in the name of Yahweh. We're going in the name of Jesus. We, We, okay, so... There's a lot of things I love about being a Protestant. And the fact that we, we're not so uh, super structured in the way that we do church or the way that we do um, our messages. If you go to a liturgical church, like they've got a whole call and response thing for one hour. You do XYZ, 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 over and over and over. It never changes. And they also, th- th- I mean, liturgical, I mean, I'm talking Orthodox, Catholic, Lutheran, Anglican. If they're. Um, Structured, if they're oh man, it's liturgical, if they're liturgical, they actually have a calendar for the whole year of what they do. This is the season of Lent. This is the season of Easter. This is the season of, of like the wheat offering. This is the season of Christmas. This is the season of Epiphany. And they, they run their services and their clothing and their decorations based on this recycling thing. We don't do that. We're a little bit more free-flowing. I like that part. I like, I like that we, we, not everything we do is scripted. Right? It, it allows a little bit more personal interaction in the messages and stuff. However, one thing that I like that they do that we don't is their baptismal recitation for somebody being baptized. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to say there is a phrase where the person doing the baptizing says to the baptizee, do you willingly renounce Satan and his angels and his pomp and his authority? And you say, yes. There's a complete break with any allegiance to the demonic, demonic, with Satan, with any of the other sons of God. There's a complete break and a total 100% allegiance to Jesus. We don't have that in our baptismal thing. We just say, Yes, Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Yes, confess your sins. Yes, repent it. Yes. All right, name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Right? We go down. We're losing out, I think, on this when we baptize new people, making a clear mark that those battle lines are drawn and those allegiances are made. Now, they're liturgical, so they will do infant baptism and then the parents do their renunciation for the kids. I don't have a solid up, solid opinion on that in terms of like, like what the official theology should be. But at some point that kid's got to learn to stand on their own two feet in their faith. Um, and that's why I'm a, I'm a big fan of believers' baptism. Because you're making your own decision. Somebody's not making it for you. <clears throat> okay, so that's that's the breakdown. That's the overview. <clears throat> so the last part about us, what do we do? <coughs> The single, I know this is this is probably the most cliche thing I can say. The single most important thing we can do in this whole thing, right? This cosmic warfare of God bringing the nations back, of taking down the sons of God, of defeating Satan and his minions. How do we go pound for pound? How do we do this? How do we ensure that like our shield is up in this phalanx of God's army? is to grow and mature in our Christian faith and our Christian character. Cuz that's the chinks in our armor. When, when we don't have the faith, we don't we don't have the character when we're not growing in our walk with God, we're a weak link. And we're all interdependent on each other as a church. Scripture says, "Don't forsake the gathering together" because we have to have each other's back, right? You like in 2007 the movie uh, 300 came out. It's a very sensual movie, so if you haven't seen it, I don't recommend watching it. There's a there's a character there named Ephialtes, who was born as a Spartan, but he was deformed. And he, he so he had to like live off in the wilderness. And but he, when he met up with the army, he wanted to get in, but he was so deformed he couldn't lift his shield up. And the the king, Leonidas, said, like, we can't use you in battle because The guys next to you are dependent on you being able to hold your shield from head to foot. You can't do that. It doesn't matter how well your spear is, right? If you can't hold up the shield, like our phalanx is going to fail. We can't use you. And he was so shafted by that that he flips to the other side. We should not be in FELTs, right? We should be aware of where we need to grow and actively do our best to grow in that. That's the best thing we can do in spiritual warfare. It doesn't matter how loud you yell how many times you shout the name of Jesus, how many times you go head-to-head with a demon that's in somebody. If you don't have the character shored up, then you're not going to be very good in battle. Like That's the single most important thing we can do is get our lives in order according to faith and character that God has spelled out. Another thing, sharing the gospel. Finding those that are willing to align with Jesus. Because this is this is a turf war now. Whenever you name the name of Jesus, like you're on the radar of the enemy. Like God said that He's going to take away their land, right? He's going to take away their authority over Russia, take away their authority over uh, Somalia, over the United States. They don't like that, and they know now with the Scripture that that'll be fulfilled when the gospel reaches all nations. So it's everything in their best interest. They know the end is coming, that their time is limited. They know that they can extend that time if they can hinder the spread of the gospel. They know. So they have every motivation to make sure that gospel does not go forth. And if it means bogging us down with bad situations and oppressive relationships and spiritual activity, attacking our finances... They will do it because they've got nothing to lose. They've already lost, right? The only thing they can do is just one last jab at Yahweh, and they're doing it by trying to take down his people. So sharing the gospel, <clears throat> we defeat dark powers. What we can do, right? This is us. You know, we don't go against the Prince of Persia. That's not us. What we do is. We disarm them. How do we do that? By getting their human followers to convert to Jesus. It takes away their power. Because just like God, they use human agents to get things done. I don't, okay, my opinion, I don't think some, a lot of the turmoil that's happening in America right now, and this division, and these weird politics, I don't care what side we're on. I don't think this is all just happenstance. It's just a bunch of one-offs going here and there. I think there's an overarching thing. That There's, there's a, a, a battle for the soul of America that's happening on a plane bigger than we can play on. And I don't think we as individuals can do anything about that. But we do know that God uses human agents. They use human agents. We can strip away their power by stripping away their human agents and bringing them over to the side of Jesus. Because everything they do, everything that the, the sons of God have done, everything from creating the Nephilim to the way they're governing the world, is just like a second-rate perversion of the way God has done things. They can only copycat. They don't have like initial creative power like God does. Because he's the only one that created things out of nothing. He's the only one that's created the order. The only thing they can do is twist it to some weird perverted version. That's it. So we disarm them by taking away their agents. and We understand that baptism is that line in the sand, the saying we're aligned with Jesus. Like, baptism is a must. Not for the forgiveness of our sins, which is a whole group. There are other groups of Christians who believe that the baptism is, is the act of forgiving your sins in Jesus' name. I don't believe that. I believe that happens upon confession, that Jesus is Lord, right, and, and, and saying that, and asking the Lord, forgive me of my sins. That's where the forgiveness happens. The baptism is a physical, visual declaration that I am in the camp of Jesus. Like, that is, that's what that is. It is the declaration. It is your, when you go to the, the state capital and you do your, like, swearing your citizenship to America. It's that, right? We're aligned. We are citizens of God's kingdom. So understanding baptism is that. Yeah, we'll, we'll cast out demons. We'll engage in charismatic gifts. Like, right? we're a charismatic church. We do this, Right? But Scripture says that this is all for fulfilling one or more of the above things. Either spreading the gospel or disempowering the human agents of, uh, of our opponents. It's all about the spreading of the kingdom of heaven one way or another. So in conclusion, try not to keep it too long, believers in Jesus are being made to replace these sons of God. right? When you look in the Old Testament, you see them referred to as holy ones. These divine beings are holy ones. This is another etymology thing. When we get to the New Testament, when you look at the Greek, we see when Paul greets the church, a lot of times he'll say, saints, when we read it in like the NIV. Hey, dear saints. The Greek for that is hagioi, holy ones. Which is the Greek referring to these angelic beings, these supernatural beings in the Old Testament, Hagioi. Paul's putting our title on par with these sons of God, Hagioi. And even in the New Testament, there are times where we're referenced as sons of God, Hagioi, holy ones. So God is raising us up to take their place and to sit in judgment over them. Already, right? Process is happening. It's not come to fruition yet, so not yet, right? We're working on that, it's a, it's a work in progress. So we follow the Lord, right? We, we obey him so that we don't suffer a similar fate. Our growth in relationship to God and bringing others into the allegiance is how we fulfill this goal and this mission. Like our devotion and our going out and bringing others in is one of the things that we do. <clears throat> so we remember that the opposing forces are going to use human agents, you know, and that's why Paul says, and we'll get into this in Second Corinthians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? But against principalities and powers, yada, 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 and anything that sets itself up against the, the knowledge of Christ, right? So we recognize that a human agent isn't a catalyst. The human agent isn't the one that's making this happen. They're just a pawn. In some ways, kind of like we're pawns for Jesus, right? We go against the principalities and powers. How do we do that? by bringing the truth, bringing the light, to people's understanding. And when we do that, it strips away the powers of the principalities, the powers and the thrones, because we're moving their, their human agents into the camp of Yahweh, and they're losing their, their, their manpower, they're losing their human agency. So anyway, that's my very long overview on the supernatural world. Take it a little bit. If you got some questions, you got some challenges, hey, great. Be glad to have a cup of coffee at some point or a phone call. But um, I, wanted, I wanted to kind of spell out the battlefield so that when we get into these other messages and we start doing things like the prophetic workshop, when we start maybe doing other workshops, whenever we go into 2 Corinthians, you guys got to have a framework. and At least you'll know where I'm coming from. Right? Um, Whenever I, I mention something. So, hopefully, you know, this wasn't too much of a, an info dump on you guys. I know, was, I know it was lengthy and it's warm in here. It's just such a cozy atmosphere just to kind of doze off. I get it. I get it. One finger out, three fingers back. I've, I've had my fair share of falling asleep in sermons. I'm not offended. <laughs> so, but if you are interested in this, you can go back and listen to the podcast again just to, at your own time, at your own climate. But uh, with that, um, if there's anybody listening in on the podcast or uh, who's on Zoom Live or even in here that doesn't really fully know Jesus and you want to, uh, you, you can pray this prayer with me. You can do it silently. God knows how he, what you think. He, if you're in company and you're just a little bit self-conscious about that, that's okay. But if you want to have an encounter with Jesus, if you're interested in this, if, you, if you're just interested and you want to have a conversation with him, you can do this. Jesus I've heard some interesting things about this, and I'm not sure what I think. But if you will meet with me, I will give you a fair audience. Because I'm interested, because I'm searching, because I need something. Will you have an encounter with me that I may know whether or not you're real or you're not? If this is legitimate or if this is just smoke. I open myself up to hear from you. If you said that, then uh, wait for him to say something. Um, if you do have questions and you don't have immediate contact with our church, you can email us at info at tgpchicago.org, and one of us will reach out to you to be able to help answer any of your questions. So that's info at tgpchicago.org. So with that, I'm going to close this up in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you Lord, that you have called us uh, not just to go from being sinners to saints, but being partners with you in the kingdom of heaven. Thank you, Lord, for the immense honor and the immense price you had to pray to make that happen. And so, Lord, let our hearts always turn to you for worship. Let us walk with you. Let us align with you in the things that we do, say, and think and the things that we spend our time with. Lord, and the values that we have. The Holy Spirit, come and refresh us. Rekindle the vision for the kingdom of heaven as we, whenever we lose sight so that we always keep you as the fo- central focus, Lord, that you are the most important thing. We love you, and we give you the thanks, the praise, the glory, and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you guys.